This week on Science for the People, we're communicating about climate. We're talking with Cheryl Kirschenbaum about the different ways people talk about climate change. But first, we talk with David Wallace-Wells about his take on climate change, designed to shake people up and get people good and scared. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, science writer at Science News and Society for Science and the Public. One of the truths we accept here on this podcast as science-minded people is that climate change is real and humans have played a major role in causing it. Are we currently playing a major role in trying to prevent its effects? Well, probably not so much. And maybe you think, well, that's okay. It's a problem our children will be facing. We've got like 50 years, right? Well, no, we don't. We're in fact feeling the effects of climate change today. We feel them and see them in more frequent and fierce natural disasters, from wildfires to snowstorms. We see them in the spread of diseases, such as Lyme disease and Zika. And yet, here we are, just living our lives, finding more and creative ways to extract fossil fuels from the ground. Fracking, anybody? Do I sound a little cynical and hopeless? Maybe I am. And if I am, I totally blame my guest today, David Wallace-Wells. He's the deputy editor of New York Magazine, and he's the author of a book about the effects of climate change, optimistically titled The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. David, uh, welcome. Thank you. I'm I guess. Sorry, I've, sorry I've, I've clouded your brain so much with um, despair and cynicism. <laughs> I'll get over it in a little. Um, I just wanted to start by asking how... Did you get into this topic? Because you actually open your book by noting that you're not really an environmentalist kind of person. Yeah, I still feel that way. Just, you know, I've now been sort of deep in this material for a couple of years and the book's been out for a few months. And so I spend a lot of time talking about it. And I often feel like I'm the least qualified person in a room to be um, holding forth about climate change since I'm someone who just came to it really, I mean, I'm only 36 years old, but really, you know, relatively late in life. Um, I'm a journalist. I've been working in magazines for about a decade now, and I've always been sort of interested, especially in the near future. And a few years ago in 2016, I started seeing um, a lot more news about climate change coming out of the academy, coming out of academic research, um, saw that it was really a lot scarier than um, I had understood the sort of state of the science to be. And then looked around at, you know, my competitor um, publications, you know, other newspapers, magazines, TV programs that cover this kind of thing, and just felt that the story that was emerging, or that I was seeing anyway, um, in this academic research simply was not being reflected, honestly, in the way that that story was being told in most of these sort of mainstream venues. And so I, I sort of like was pulled in deeper and deeper by a few different I guess, complementary impulses, um, one of which was just this sort of storytelling wonderment that I was, you know, I felt this saga was much bigger, more dramatic, more epic than most of us really understood. Um, part of it was just mercenary. I thought that there was a kind of a journalistic opportunity there to, um, to tell a really big story and um, reach people that hadn't been reached before on, on the subject. And I was also going through a kind of... Um, you know, it's strange to use this kind of language. I'm not the sort of person who tends to, but a kind of journey of awakening myself where I was just every day seeing um, darker and darker projections for what um, the world would look like in my own lifetime. And as you mentioned a little bit at the top, you know, that was really very fundamentally different from the way that I had been, I think, led to um, relate to the climate crisis as 
recently as a few years ago when I felt very much that even the people who were talking about it in quite alarming terms were talking about it as a threat that was going to be arriving at the very fastest on the timescale of decades. You know, James Hansen, who's a, a, you know, a kind of legendary heroic climate scientist outspoken so much so that he's often called an alarmist. His book for a general audience is called um, Storms for My Storms of My Grandchildren. Um, and that was very much, I think, the way that the public generally understood this this crisis. I was seeing in 2016 so much more um, concerning um, research that was saying this stuff is going to be much, much worse than we think. It's also going to be happening much, much faster than we think. And I felt, um, in addition to you know being a kind of a um, enraptured storyteller, enamored with the scale of the story that I was um, uncovering, and also a kind of competitive journalist, just someone who was on his own dizzying um, existential um, journey to really figure out how profoundly this new perspective would shake and transform um, all of the ways that I thought about my relation to the modern world. So I, you know, I wanted to understand the science very deeply, but I also pretty quickly started thinking about, you know, what it would mean if we found ourselves living on this degraded planet at, at two degrees, at three degrees, at four degrees, possibly at temperatures kind of well above that, um, what would it, what it would mean for our politics and our geopolitics? What would it mean for our culture, our storytelling, how we thought of our place in nature and understood our relationship to capitalism and the place of technology in the modern world and whether we thought of history as sort of tracing an arc of progress or something, um, some different pattern, some more erratic pattern. And um, I started to feel very quickly, I would say, that um, so much of what I, as a kind of complacent urban, um, you know, neoliberal subject, uh, to use a term that um, I'm not sure I would have ever signed up for at the time, but now I see in retrospect was really who I was, um, how much of all those things that I took for granted as a kid growing up in the 1990s in a relatively well-off part of the United States um, – just took for granted about the whole shape of the world, um, how much of that was really predicated on um, climate conditions that were going to change quite dramatically and started to think about just how different a world we could all be living in um, in relatively short order, which is really, I think, what my book does most, um, most originally. I, it does walk you through some quite scary science, but I'm not the first person to have done that. I think um, what feels more interesting to me, at least, is... Um, you know, thinking a little more um, farsightedly about what it would mean if this all these impacts come to pass for all these non-scientific aspects of the way that we live. And I think those impacts ultimately are likely to be just as profound, if not more profound, than the sort of direct climate ones. One of the things I found interesting um, about kind of like your, like your opener to this book is that you noted that you were kind of coming to this awakening, but also that you didn't really have a lot of faith in the environmentalist stand on climate change. What do you mean by that? And, and why are you not necessarily like, why, why do you not place faith in it? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put, I wouldn't put the, I wouldn't phrase it that way. I would say that um, the environmentalist movement has done um, incredibly noble, inspired and far seeing work for generations now um, that shame me and many other people like me who 
didn't realize what a crisis this was until quite recently. Um, but I also think that they developed a lot of habits and um, hardened certain perspectives that make sense to people who are the sorts of people who really commit their lives to environmentalism and not necess- and don't necessarily translate or work on the much bigger mass of people who are um, who want to believe that the planet can be um, supportive of prosperous, fulfilling, um, safe, stable human life, um, but who didn't spend their whole teenage years, um, you know, rallying against nuclear power or, um, you know, volunteering for Greenpeace or um, going on month-long hikes through, you know, the Appalachian Trail. Again, I don't, I don't, I really don't mean to disparage any of those things in a certain way. Like I said, I'm shamed by the commitment of those people who have spent their lives doing that. And I feel, um, you know, certainly like a, a late comer to this story. But when I look globally, I see so, so, mo- so many more people who are like I was until a few years ago. That is kind of aware about climate change, concerned about it to some degree or other, but basically, take for granted that the world as it is today is a pretty good model for the world that as it will be a decade or two from now, almost no matter what we do, um, and haven't yet really had their eyes opened about just how dramatic the transformations that are coming will be, and how dramatically that could transform their own lives and the lives of those that they love and care for. And I think that frankly, as someone who was one of those people until recently, and who felt a lot of the environmentalist messaging about climate change in particular, but actually gener- more generally about the environment, did, that just that messaging never really worked on me. I felt um, in starting my research, in writing a few articles, also in writing the book, very much that um, there was a, another rhetorical approach um, that would, like, or could work on people like me um, and bring those people to a place of much greater concern about, about climate change, which is really ultimately, I think, what we need. Because if what we're asking, I mean, this is getting into the sort of political strategy, which is not, um, not exactly the place I consider myself an expert or, you know, I'm not an advocate, I'm just a journalist. But um, to the extent that I feel drawn into this fight by the scale and urgency of the crisis, which I do to some extent, um, I feel very much that you know, we can't win this war against all of the forces of inaction if our only soldiers are the people who believe that um, nature is uh, the paramount, like, um, let let me put this a little differently. We can't win that war against all of the forces of inaction that are allied against, um, you know, what we what we need to do to make the planet um, livable, hospitable, and supportive of of good human life. If we are using rhetorical messaging that has and embracing a perspective on the environment that is intuitive to, I don't know some five or 10 percent of the population who are most committed to the value of nature and not to the 50, 60, 70 percent of the middle of the population who are primarily concerned about nature in as much as it affects human life. 
and you know i i i i've I've had a kind of an awakening on this too, and I happen to now sort of value and um admire the natural world more than I did a few years ago, but a lot of that has to do with the fact that I understand just how deeply connected all of us are to that natural world. I used to feel you know someone who lived my whole life in New York walked down those concrete streets, looked up at those um, steel skyscrapers and felt I was not living in nature. I was living in the modern world. And the modern world was a fortress that protected me against nature. And as a result, I could appreciate the beauty of nature, enjoy that it um, was important for some people living in some parts of the world as a kind of necessary resource. But for me and just about everybody I knew, I thought this was you know, nature was an entertainment. It was a diversion. It was something to go on a trip to see. It wasn't, it sounds no na- so naive to say it now, but it, it didn't feel to me at the time like an all-encompassing system that governed everything about my life and everything about the way that I lived, in, even in a place like New York City. The more I know about climate change, the more profound I know that that um, interrelationship is. You know, there are these scary projections for economic impacts where we could have a 30% smaller GDP than we would without climate change by the end of the century. That's an imp- because of climate change. That's an impact that's twice as deep as the Great Depression and be permanent. The impacts on agriculture are similarly terrifying. Um, grain yields could be 50% as productive as they are today. We'd be using that half as bountiful grain yield to feed 50% more people. Um, there are impacts on conflict, which could double by the end of the century because of climate change. Um, public health impacts where, you know, mosquitoes that used to carry malaria and dengue just around the tropics will now be flying as far north as the Arctic Circle in a few decades. Um, there's the impact of, and um, I just read a study today about um, the way that fungal infections, which have basically been not worth worrying about for all of human history, could become quite, um, you know, much, much more dramatically concerning to humans simply because our bodies are going to pass a threshold past which um, funguses are much more comfortable living. Um, it's been the case that the, temper- the human body temperature and the environmental temperature have been protections against fungal infections, which are crippling to other species in the world. And it may be that soon, in short order, climate change will, will redefine those boundaries. In fact, there are a few really scary fungal infections that have already been um, transformed by, by climate change in exactly this way. Um, there's almost everywhere you look, there are impacts. There are impacts on human cognition. The hotter it is, the less well your brain performs. There are impacts of um, the air pollution that comes from fossil fuels that dramatically affect the development of children in utero. And once they've been born, um, you can see, you know, rates of murder um, spike, rates of rape spike in, when, when it's hot out. Um, you know, there's just in absolutely every conceivable area of modern life, there's an impact um, to be you know, to be expected in climate. And that means that there's, it's just a silly, preposterous, naive delusion that I had, and I think many, many other people have, that um, we can live outside of nature beyond its reach, no matter where you live, whether you're right on the coast and having to worry about sea level rise, whether you're deep in the heartland um, and having to worry about crazy rainstorms like we've seen this spring in, in the Midwest, um, whether you're in California facing wildfires or all around the world, you know, in, in Europe, we're now dealing with, we're recording today, um, records being, temperature rep- records being set today for the second time in a month in mainland Europe. Um, these are temperatures that were considered historic a couple of weeks ago, and they're, they're, we're passing those thresholds already today. 
and that is um, in part of the world that is not even adequately equipped in terms of air conditioning. 5% of French people, 5% live in air-conditioned homes. And today, the peak temperature in Paris was 109 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and, you know, because of that, um, there are quite scary projections about what will happen just because of extreme heat, where, you know, whole parts of the planet, especially South Asia and the Middle East, many of the biggest cities in that part of the world, will be made unlivably hot by direct heat just as soon as 2050. That means that cities like Calcutta, which today have I don't know, 10, 12 million people, um, will be so hot that you won't be able to move around outside. You certainly won't be able to work outside in summer without risking heat stroke and death, which is one reason why the UN predicts that just by 2050, we could have 200 million climate refugees. Um, they think it's possible we could have a billion climate refugees by then, by 2050, um, which is, you know, I just had a daughter last year. My daughter will be barely into her 30s. And we're talking about the possibility of a billion climate refugees by that point. Um, this is not in the distant future. And these are not impacts that we can shrug off as trivial or marginal. They are dramatic. You know, I think we will in time adapt and learn to live with some of the suffering, which I think is one of the great tragedies of the story that we have such an incredible, we have an incredible capacity for adaptation. We also have an incredible capacity for normalization such that um, I think probably the, the likeliest future is one in which we take some action to decarbonize um, and therefore limit the amount of warming that we're seeing. We also develop some technology and make some investments that allow us to live with this suffering. But we also simply define um, our level of acceptable suffering much, much, much higher. And in fact, sort of turn away from the people who are um, really hurt most by climate change, which is a pattern we're already seeing when Parts of the equatorial band of the world, the global south, are already um, really, really damaged. Those, those lives are really, really impacted in some quite horrifying ways by climate change. And most of us in the sort of wealthy corners of the West um, are mostly ignoring that suffering. Unfortunately, yeah. I think that's, yeah, that's sort of um, one roadmap for the future, although it's not one that I am excited about for sure. Now, you know, you mentioned that you know, the environmentalist message didn't necessarily appeal to you, um, you know, but they weren't the only people who were talking. I mean, you note in the book that there are loads of scientists who communicate all the time about climate change, um, but they tend to be kind of not not as as dire uh, <laughs> as you uh, kind of just sounded for the last like 10 minutes, <laughs> um, even though they do have loads of data to back them up. Um and I was wondering, historically, why have climate scientists been so restrained in their communications? I think it's sort of a complicated question to answer with a lot of different factors. But I would um, start from the totally human one, which I think that um, it's an impulse that I share, a reflex that I have, and I think many other people too, not just in the scientific community, it's globally. We just don't want to take seriously really scary possibilities for our own future. And we're sort of reluctant to, um, to, you know, to really stare directly at projections that scare us. Um, in the scientific community, you know, the, which is where those projections come from, there are a whole lot of other complicating factors. Um, you know, these are people who are, as scientists, they're sort of temperamentally cautious. Um, they are also often very narrowly focused on their very particular area of expertise and um, want to be as careful and technical in their discussion of that um, research, um, which means that they, while they may be somewhat comfortable 
um, discussing or sort of publicizing an alarming finding in their particular area, the big picture was often not a part of what they of, of how they talked about it. Um, it was also the case that for a couple of decades they were um, the targets of really vicious um, campaigns by, you know, fueled mostly by the fossil fuel business of disinformation and denial, and um, that made them, I think, a little bit gun shy, um, totally understandably, in the sense that they understood that any projection they made that was a little too, um, you know, a little off that later got revised downward would be used against them um, in the future. I think that's totally reasonable. And they also had a, um, a sort of personal um, experience in this work, which is that they were staring at the science every day, working with it, working on it, um, as scientists, oftentimes as part-time advocates as well. And saw very little progress over a couple of decades and probably felt themselves um, really on the brink of despair, um, feeling like the world was simply not paying attention to what they had to say. I think that they, as a result, sort of overestimated the, um, the risk to the public of falling into collective despair, that they, they, um, they projected their own sort of um, precarious emotional state onto um, a much bigger population of people who had not spent nearly as much time on climate had much less reason to be really despairing or pushed into a kind of fatalistic state and worried a bit about um, what it would mean to be sharing really dire findings with the public. Um, they were sort of supported in that intuition, which I, I take to be a sort of interpersonal intuition by a, what I would say is a, um, a sort of, superficial and um, incomplete reading of some social science literature around um, political messaging, which they felt gave them a single model, more or less, um, for how to talk about um, this subject, which is to say that they felt it was really important to always be emphasizing um, the notes of hope and optimism, and that there was a really meaningful risk that people would get too scared and shut down and shut off. And when I was first writing about this material, I felt very much that that was um, just at a kind of intuitive level myself, um, an imperfect approach to the subject. I thought that, um, first of all, as a journalist, my, my instinct is, you know, to share the news. And if the news is scary, it's the responsible thing to do to um, scare people with it, to be completely honest. And the truth was that the, the, the news, the science that I was reading was quite alarming. So I thought that it was a respectful um, way to process that information to alarm people with it. Um, but I also felt personally that I had been awoken out of a slumber of complacency by fear. And I imagined that there were many other people like me out there that I was a better proxy for the generic, at least liberal um, American than someone who had been neck deep in climate research for three decades, wondering why nobody had paid attention before. And the more I thought about it, the more that I read about it, um, the more I felt sort of confirmed in those intuitions by the history of environmental advocacy, where, you know, Rachel Carson, when she published Silent Spring, she was attacked for being hyperbolic and alarmist. But that book led to the creation of 
it led to the ban on DDT and basically led to the creation of the EPA. Our campaigns against nuclear proliferation, against cigarette smoking, were powered in part at least by, by fear and alarmism, and very usefully so. And then I felt especially confirmed in my perspective when last October, the UN released this sort of landmark, um, I call it like their doomsday report. It actually only looked at temperature increases between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees. So it really didn't even look at many of the scarier possibilities um, for warming even this century. But it was presented in this kind of unprecedentedly urgent language. It was very, very different from the way that any equivalent reports had ever been um, presented before by any sort of equivalent scientific body, um, and especially was talked about by its authors in the press in at the moment of its release in much, much more urgent, demanding, alarmist terms. And I have to say, this was a sort of a, it felt like a test case of my own theory. It's a little grand. It wasn't like they were working off me particularly, but um, the response has been completely incredible. We have seen an unprecedented mobilization around climate politics in the nine months or so since that report was published. It's, you know, Greta Thunberg's climate strikes started and picked up steam. They're now inspiring millions of school children all around the world to strike. And she got the EU president to commit to um, spending a quarter of all EU money on climate adaptation and mitigation. We see Extinction Rebellion in the UK pressure a British, a conservative British parliament to commit to zero carbon by 2050, which is not quite as fast as I would like, but still amazing, declare a climate emergency in the, in the parliament. Seen in Denmark, um, a commitment to uh, 70% reduction of carbon emissions by 2030, which is an incredible um, goal. In the U.S., we've had Sunrise, you know, AOC leading the charge with, on a Green New Deal, and a whole slate of presidential candidates who are competing to be each one of them more serious than the next about climate. This is just a completely different climate politics than we've seen ever. And I think it is not at all a coincidence that it's happened in the immediate aftermath of this um, this UN report, which for the first time really embraced um, the rhetorical strategy of alarmism um, to advance the, you know, to, to, to engage the public in a more direct way. I think there's no way you could look at the result of that and think that there was, um, that judge it as anything but a success. And actually, a few months later, there was a, um, maybe it was a few months earlier, I don't even remember, but there was a paper in Nature looking at exactly this question using an article I had written in 2017. Um, as a sort of jumping off point in which they sort of reviewed all of the existing social science literature and said, you know, actually this consensus that we have to be messaging optimistically is really misleading. You know, there's no way to know who's going to respond to what kind of message. Everybody has a different, um, you know, is going to respond to different points of emphasis, different rhetorical strategies. Some people are going to respond to different things on different days. And the best thing to do is to try everything. Um, and I felt for a very long time, that climate scientists, climate advocates, climate journalists were not trying everything at all. They were trying only one thing, which has value to, you know, to be careful, cautious, technocratic, and um, to some degree kind of optimistic in their um, projections for what the future holds. I think there is, that is a part of the story and deserves to be a part of the story. But they were leaving all of these other um, um, approaches, um, storytelling approaches, um, on the, you know, on the wayside. And I think that is one reason. It's certainly not the only reason we have a lot of other reasons, but, um, it's one reason why we saw such a kind of a flatlined, um, interest in climate change over a couple of decades. And we've now seen, 
just in the last year, dramatic upturns in how much public engagement there is on this issue and how much public alarm. And I think, you know, we have um, a new politics as a result, which is exhilarating. You know, it's still well, not still not fast enough um, for what we need to avoid really catastrophic warming. But from any political science perspective, it's kind of unprecedented change. And I think um, a new sense of urgency and alarmism is, is a big part of that. And and you kind of have taken this sense of urgency and the sense of alarm very much to heart in this book. Um, the first 12 chapters are basically um, kind of a list of all of the ways that different degrees of warming, even the best case scenarios, are going to make life really hard. And I have to say, the book was hard to read. I mean, it's very well written. <laughs> Um, I read about climate change a lot. I have written entire features on climate change myself. The book was still really hard to read. And and actually, after the first 12 chapters, in which you detail these many ways in which we are going to suffer from the effects of climate change, you also note that if someone has read after like two chapter 12, they're brave. <laughs> and they are, because it feels the book... I mean, it, it's almost like a Jeremiah of humanity's failures. <laughs> you know, I kind yeah. of feel a lot like when I'm reading it, those those monks in the Middle Ages that flagellated themselves for the sins of the world, you know, with like the mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. Yeah. Um, are And, you know, I, I know that, that you're talking about how kind of the, the doomsday report out of the the UN recently kind of led to this kind of increase in action. But are are you worried that if you write a book that is so scary, people are going to say, this is a nightmare I would like to wake up? I hope that they think that because it's in their power to wake up. It's in all of our collective power to change the story immediately. You know, when I talk about some of these really terrifying outcomes, um, and they terrify me too, of course, how could they not? Um, you know, I think it's understandable to feel a little paralyzed and a little overwhelmed. Um, I feel that way myself often. Um, but ultimately, the, the, the terrifying scale of these possible scenarios is a reflection of our power over the climate. This is not a system that is spinning out of control. It is in our control. The reason that the climate is warming, the overwhelming reason, is carbon emissions. You know, at some point in the future, it may be the case that some feedback loops um, are triggered and um, we have much less control over the climate. But at the moment, and I think for the foreseeable future, we have to say that the main, the main writer of this story is what we do with carbon. And collectively, but at the same time, yeah, you you. You were just about to say it again, collectively. It's hard to, you know, part of what was paralyzing about the book for me was that, you know, I, I am looking at, you know, the, the heating seas, the, you know, the wildfires, hurricanes, and I know that nothing that I do personally other than vote will make any difference whatsoever. I can stop eating beef. That's cute. You know, I can try and use reusable things and I can try to walk and that's cute too. But I, I feel it, it's kind of easy to feel helpless. It kind of activates this whole like fight, flight or freeze idea, you know, 
it it well, how, what directions do you give people to go in well i would say i mean just to, to be, sort of be clear and honest to your listeners um I, this is not a book written from a perspective of advocacy, and I do hope that readers are motivated and mobilized by it because I really want to, us to make progress, hopefully a lot of progress on this issue. But it is primarily a descriptive book written by a journalist. So my main impulse in laying out um, those scenarios is really a kind of truth-telling impulse. It's to sketch the full scale of the story so that readers can reckon with it um, in whatever way they, they choose. But in terms of where it takes you, you know, I would say, you know, the UN in the in the Doomsday Report said that, you know, in order to avoid catastrophic warming, we need to have our carbon emissions by 2030. And they said that what we needed to do to achieve that was a global World War II scale mobilization on climate starting immediately. Basically, uh, the Secretary General said 2019 it needed to start. And all of the feelings that you have of um, smallness would have been equally true of someone living through World War II. Um, you know, we would not have felt that we could do anything as individuals to stop the Holocaust or the rule of fascism or the brutal destruction of at least one continent and in certain ways several others. Um, we would not have felt as individuals capable of doing anything to respond to that. But we lived in a culture that had a much bigger, more central place for political engagement, civic engagement of all kinds as a way of taking action. And I worry that so many of the lessons of our culture over the last couple of decades have been to teach us that only what we do as individuals matters. And in some way, only what we do as individual consumers matter. And that there's this sort of thread um, of conversation around climate. I hear it all the time when I'm speaking, you know, um, here and there, when I'm talking to friends and family, but also when I'm, you know, um, doing, you know, appearances for the book and, you know, talking to um, organizations of various kinds. People want to know what they can do. And what they mean by that is ultimately like, what can I stop buying what can I stop eating? Where can I stop traveling? Those are things that people should do if they feel motivated to do them from a climate perspective. I think people should feel like they live within their values. And if they feel like climate hypocrites for getting on a lot of planes, they should stop. But the fact that the individual impacts and particularly individual consumption impacts are relatively trivial is not an argument to give up. It's an argument that we should turn towards the arena that we have to take collective action, which is to say politics. And I think we've like, we've so turned away from that arena as, you know, like I said earlier, like good neoliberal subjects, um, that we've almost forgotten how powerful it can be. But, you know, if you take the, the, um, analogy of World War II seriously, and I think there are ways to think that it's an imperfect fit, actually, but, if you take the, the analogy seriously, you know, this was a situation in which nearly every um, corner of heavy industry was nationalized. Every factory in the U.S. basically was redirected. They were told, you used to be making this kind of thing. Now you're making this other kind of thing. Every man, 
between the ages of 18 and 35 was drafted into the army. And practically speaking, nearly every woman of that age was drafted for the first time into the workforce. This is, you know, this is what politics can achieve. I happen to think that that kind of total, um, you know, nationalization approach is probably not going to be most effective or advisable on climate. But it reminds you that dramatic change at the social political level is possible. This is something that happened in my father's lifetime. Um, this is not, we're not talking about the Middle Ages. We're not talking about ancient Greece. This is, you know, some version of America that looks quite like the one that we live in today was able to dramatically reorient its priorities because it understood that it faced an existential threat. And but if again, we take serious, yeah. what you're saying here is that, you know, it was understood that they faced an existential threat. Um, and that, you know, much as you say, you know, people might have felt individually helpless, you know, during the mobilization against the existential threat in World War II, people did not, there were many opportunities for this individualistic action. Um, you know, in particular, for example, women were drafted into the war workforce. They were literally putting together planes. <laughs> you know, they, there was a lot of individual action. Um, that, but, uh, that, there's that, less that's, that's, opportunity for that here. I don't, I'm not sure that I really think that that's true. I mean, I think certainly if, if we were to, um, put, you know, if we were to really mobilize against climate, um, if our politics and our culture and our economy was really, um, fundamentally reoriented in that direction, all of those same opportunities would, would be there for individuals. And at the moment, I think they're still there in the sense of, you know, the political venues are in front of us, but they're also, um, you know, there's innovation to be done and, and businesses to be run that are, that are, um, green. Um, and they're, you know, they're in the same, in exactly the same way as was the case 75 years ago. Um, there, you know, there were, there are opportunities for individuals to participate in a collective action. Um, and I see that not just in the abstract, I see that, um, in like the polling data, I think many, many more people are now really concerned about climate than were a year ago. Um, and, the protest movements that we're seeing are very encouraging in that exactly that way. People who used to be sitting on the sidelines and not really sure what they could do if they were concerned are seeing opportunities for change through political action. Now, if we were to, um, at the national level, enact something dramatic like the Green New Deal or something conceived at that scale, there would be, of course, many more, um, many more opportunities for individual action as well. But that's not a reason for me to not advocate for that kind of transformation or mobilization. It's a reason to advocate for it, because it, if we are hungry to be participating in a healthier um, economic uh, approach, you know, a, a healthier economy, a, you know, a, a environmentally healthier economy, um, or ideally, you know, hungry to actually solve this problem, um, then and what that requires is some changes at a very high level to the way that our um, politics and culture and economy are oriented, then what we should try to be, what we should be trying to do is to achieve those changes. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think that that's true at the, U at the national level. I think it's true at the international level. I also think it's true at the local level. I mean, there are, you know, um, there's community action to be taken you know, really everywhere. And it gets all the way down, not, not just at the, you know, like, um, say 
you know, making sure that your town is, um, you know, powered by solar panels or, or, you know, um, arguing with the NIMBY, the local NIMBYs who are fighting a, um, a wind farm installation a few, a few miles down the road, but even down to the level of just talking about the issue, um, as it, um, concerns you internally, there's all this, all this, all these studies showing that many, many more people are worried about climate change than regularly talk about it, even with the people that they love. And I think that means that so many of us feel this kind of climate anxiety bottled up inside us, um, rather than understanding it as essentially a social phenomenon in which we're connected directly, presumably, to many other people who are also really freaked out about it. And that, like, through that connection, you can start to make some, um, you know, political progress that can um, enable some of the more dramatic transformations that we need. Now, I'm not like a Pollyanna-ish, um, you know, u- utopian um, person on this. I think there are huge obstacles to um, to climate action. I think, you know, the way that our political economy has been set up to, um, you know, in a generic way, resist meaningful change on any front is a problem. I think the way that um, the fossil fuel industry in particular has funded um, campaigns of disinformation and delay and inaction is especially problematic. Um, and I think that the kind of culture war that we're living through in which the value of science is dis- you know, discredited by one of, the, um, one of the two major parties in American politics is really problematic. And yet, when I see surveys showing that 73% of Americans are concerned about climate change, that means to me that many Republicans are concerned about climate change. And in fact, there are studies showing that the majority of Republicans want a gr- quote-unquote aggressive action by the American government to combat climate change. Um, so there is, um, you know, there, there are reasons for um, concern. You know, we're facing a lot of obstacles, but all of those obstacles are ultimately human obstacles. And we have, in theory at least, the power to overcome them through um, political action. And ultimately, it has to be political action because nothing else is capable of addressing the problem at the scale that it presents itself at. Um, now, again, I don't want to say, like, we're going to work this out. It's going to be no problem. We'll just win an election and everything will be really easy. I think when you look around the world, you see many governments that are much to the left of the U.S. on the environment, many even green um, governments, socialist governments. Basically, no nation in the world is ahead of where the U.S. is. Um, on cutting emissions. There are some that have made some more ambitious commitments over the last couple of years. Um, but, you know, in general, emissions are still going up every single year. Every year is worse than the last. Um, in 2018, actually, in the U.S., emissions went up because there was increased energy demand because more people were using air conditioning to deal with more extreme heat, um, which is just a kind of grotesque um, feedback loop to contemplate. But generally speaking, um, we ha- nowhere in the world have we figured out a politics that is yet truly capable of addressing this issue. Um, so I'm skeptical that some of the things that stand in our way in the U.S. are um, uh, are the one are you know are the uh, are the are the only things standing in the way of a solution. Um, but I also think globally, if you can adapt, if you can bring yourself to adapt a kind of um, global perspective, this is a system that is being driven by human action. And at least in theory, human action can drive it in a different direction. Well, David, that actually is kind of uplifting. (laughs) Thank you very much for being here. (laughs) 
My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it so much. The book is a tough read, but it's an important one. And if you'd like to hear more about David Wallace Wells and his book, The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming, we've got more information at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Doomsday is one way to talk about climate change. It's not the only way. What is the best way to talk about climate change? That's a really good question. There may be more than one answer. Next up, we'll be talking with Cheryl Kirschenbaum about how we talk about climate change and why getting messaging right matters so much. Don't touch that screen. Welcome back. Okay. I admit, in that previous interview, I was a little depressed. But I mean, who wouldn't be depressed? Killer heat waves, killer fires, killer hurricanes, all that. And we are still transporting our organic quinoa in cargo ships and 18-wheeler trucks belching carbon dioxide. And some of the articles and books do seem to make you feel a little helpless. Others make you feel less helpless, but also don't really give you anything to do. Still others fill you with lingering guilt from any burger you might have eaten in the last year. But do any of these articles and books inspire action? Here to talk with us about climate change communication is Cheryl Kirschenbaum, a science communicator at Michigan State University and executive director of Science Debate, which works to get politicians to speak about science. Cheryl, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Now, you've written an opinion piece for Scientific American about the proliferation of climate change communication that feels hopeless, is I guess the right word. You've used the phrase doomsday porn, which I kind of love. What made you want to write the article? Well, I understand that, and I do call it doomsday porn, um, (laughs) It seems to be everywhere. I understand that it generates clicks and it does capture public imagination and get folks to really pay attention to climate change, maybe. Um, But it doesn't really convey the nuances of the challenges we face and where opportunities exist. And what I've observed, it's anecdotal, but many of my friends and colleagues that don't work on climate issues, I've been in the climate space for decades, a lot of people are scared and hopeless and don't know what to do. Um, my circle of friends completely outside of academia pings me with text messages and phone calls and we'll be out and they'll look at me and they'll say, I heard civilization is going to collapse in 12 years. What do I do? What do I tell my kids? And I just I don't think that's very productive because si- uh, climate debate is dire and it's serious and there's so much we can do. But I also work in a space at Michigan State University and more broadly where there are people all around the world and a lot of my colleagues here in the U.S. taking action to make things better. So I really wish we'd focus on the solutions and the means to adapt rather than just throwing up our hands and saying the world is ending. Um, I actually was reading your opinion piece and, you know, your friends are, are panicked, but I think my favorite is you met a guy who is collecting acorns. To fight, like, to, to deal with climate change, this is a new approach. Can you tell me more about this guy? Because you just kind of mentioned him in passing, like, oh, I met this guy who's collecting acorns for the apocalypse. Like, what's the story there? Yeah, that, that didn't actually make the cut for the piece, but I think I mentioned that to you in an email. Um, I had just been in Boston uh, doing some work up there, 
and met someone who just lived in the neighborhood and who found out that I worked on climate and policy issues and launched into this whole explanation of how he's preparing for the climate change apocalypse is what he called it, which kind of goes with the whole doomsday and porn merit narrative title. Uh, he is uh, going around collecting acorns. He's got the neighborhood kids involved. So there were some children of colleagues that said, oh, yeah, I heard about this. He's figured out how to make some kind of acorn burger, he said, um, but in completely serious about it. It's not tongue in cheek. He thinks that there's going to be no food available uh, very little water, and he's going to be prepared because he has a stash of acorns. And frankly, that that's not going to help anyone. I well, if you like, I don't really know how <laughs> acorns taste, but I guess I, it might help him. Maybe he's really into that. I don't think there's that much to eat in an acorn, but to be fair, I haven't tried his burgers. I'm just uh, thinking think of what I would stockpile <laughs> if I had to stockpile something, and it would probably be like wild berry pop tarts. Mm, which might okay. be just as useless. So I think for me it would be it would be things that you can put into do- tacos, which is pretty much anything. Uh, but it's it's odd. But I think we've pushed folks to the point where they think that's where we're headed. And I don't know if you're um, following this at all, but I follow food trends, and a lot of my work at Michigan State deals with many different aspects of food. And there's actually been a boom in the survival meal kits. So yes, not, MREs. Not, yes, not <laughs> just the the Blue Aprons and the stuff that anyone and everyone seems to be ordering these days, um, but the ones that are freeze-dried and once you know it's doomsday, you can be the person in your neighborhood that has all the stuff. Maybe you touched on this in the last segment. I, I did not, um, but I've definitely heard about the increased trend of people stockpiling MREs. Um, you mentioned that, you, you know, this is a kind of anecdotal. You have friends. You met the dude with the acorns, acorn man. Um, is this, do we know how people generally feel about climate change? Do we know how alarmed people are? As far as I can tell, there's not a ton of research on the science communication side. So we have some uh, information about how people respond to framing when it comes to issues like uh, what we might term the war on science. But there's work in psychology that shows when you panic people, when something seems so big, we're almost observing it as if we would observe a film. It's, it's so big that we feel the fear, but we feel paralyzed that we're part of the story. And I, I mean, we, we do these doomsday scenarios all the time. If you're old enough to remember Y2K or some of the other events, there's, there's always some cataclysmic thing that's looming. But I argue, um, I argue often with people here, but uh, in the piece as well, I think climate change is too serious to make it just another doomsday narrative that we're watching passively. We've, we've all got a role to play and we can do that in a ton of different ways. And we can also work to support the people and the research that are our greatest hope. And to do that, you know, we have to, we have to talk about real solutions and that one of the big ones is wasting less food, which curbs climate emissions and saves water and saves energy. Um, but changing agriculture, changing the way we use water, uh, being more efficient with our energy, considering more plant-based meat alternatives. Like none of these are a drop in the bucket. All of these collectively with so many other things um, are going to allow us to avoid the worst possible outcome. And I'm sure in the previous segment, you talked a lot about some of the worst possible outcomes. Well, we didn't really talk about that. We kind of focused on the message really, because has the, you know, the, the, 
there's this kind of idea of doomsday porn. Has this been increasing recently? Are more people doing this? Um, and if so, why, why are they doing this? Well, it definitely seems to be the kind of thing that has captured public imagination in a bigger way more recently. I mean, I, I don't personally have the data on this, but um, there's there's the the uninhabitable earth that came out. There's been a ton, like in a, a barrage of interviews on radio. There's the the type of visuals you see. Time magazine recently had someone standing waist deep in water talking about rising seas. Um, it's it's very serious. But you know what I've personally experienced firsthand is some of the same people who, when I worked on Capitol Hill in 2006, said climate change isn't real. You know, you're all just being paid by the by the people who, who want their, what I, you know, they, they thought it was a big conspiracy. Those same people are, are now in touch with me saying, well, we're all doomed. So there's no reason to push any policy. These are the people making decisions that are going to both impact the United States and the planet. So I just feel like the wrong, the wrong way to get people to act both in the policy realm and in the personal sphere uh, is being employed far too often. I mean, there's an argument um, that people who use kind of doomsday narratives are, are using, um, is that fear and alarm can activate people. It makes people want to actually do something. Is, is there a possibility that these narratives will activate people or will they just shut down? Do we know at what point fear alarms someone into action versus alarms someone into helplessness? I just don't think we have the data on that. So what I, I mean, there could be more out there. But what I observe is it's a lot of journalists who are telling stories, um, who are getting people to focus on these challenges um, with that kind of uh, expectation that that's the, the outcome we'll hope for. Uh, but what we what seems to happen, um, we, we can see it in some of the recent climate related events, the big wildfires or flooding um, or, or some of the, the other challenges that we faced, at least in the U.S., the stories that come out of those, they're very scary, big events happen related to our changing environment. But the, the big memorable piece of that is usually how communities band together, how we're helping each other. It's, it's many steps further to start pointing fingers at the way our behavior has exacerbated some of these challenges. And I just think that gets lost along the way. Um, what we can do about it. it. It feels like there's kind of two camps here. You have your doomsday scenarios and you have your people who are like, yeah, it could be this bad, but it's okay. We'll band together. It's very hopeful. Are are these doomsday versus hopeful scenarios two non-overlapping Venn diagrams? Is there some way to either balance this? Is there a third way of communication that can activate people and make the while making them recognize severity of the problem? That's uh, a tough question. What I'd say is, I think, I mean, it's, it's such a politicized issue. And that's a big part of the challenge that often people feel pulled to kind of one way of thinking about it because of whatever affiliation they have. But I think we often hear about the extremes of both arguments. When climate change is very nuanced, it's not going to impact everyone the same way. It's going to be very bad for a huge number of people, um, both in and outside of the U.S., primarily the people less, least equipped to deal with what's coming. And it's horrible. But I think that there are some policy levers that we can do 
or that we can utilize to, to support those communities and sometimes move those people and those uh, and protect. I mean, it's not just about people, right? Like also protect the biodiversity on Earth um, through through conservation and, and through other means. Uh, I don't think I actually answered your question there, uh, but I think that we need to be we need to be talking about things as if it's not such a one size fits all outcome. And you noticed that you noted earlier that a lot of the doomsday scenarios don't really address the nuance of science on climate change. What are these nuances? Why are they so important? Oh, well, there's, there's so many parts of it, right? So um, when I talk to some of the young people I know here uh, at at, well, here in Michigan, for example, um, some of our students who got involved in the climate strike and the climate march, um, they're ready to do something, but they're also not that informed about what that something might be. Um, some of them are equally as active on protesting genetically modif- uh, genetically modified foods um, when that's a very complex topic, but some of the gene editing taking place is actually supposed to support uh, food security in the future, which is inherently part of the climate conversation. So there's all different pieces. There's a lot about how we use water, how we can be more responsible to where we're moving it, um, and what we can do to protect what we have that I think are going unrecognized. Um, while, yes, um, more energy-efficient technology is great, and we should be looking at renewables, but we're not there yet to go 100% renewables. So just pointing at that and saying we need more solar panels doesn't quite get us all the way there to deal with climate issues. Well, there's also kind of a question of blame, right? I think there's there's a an effort. People want to blame someone. And mm-hmm. and I think part of what leaves people feeling helpless is there's kind of two narratives here. You have your first narrative, which is like, well, if you just ate less meat and mm-hmm. flew less, didn't fly, um, then we wouldn't have this problem. And then there's the other narrative saying, oh, no, no, you personally can't do anything. It's all big oil. And all you can do to fight it is vote. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I personally think those aren't mutually exclusive. Uh, So we can really press those with a lot more influence and a lot more impact to be more sustainable and support good research and support solutions. But I think every one of us has a choice about the way we use energy, uh, the way we waste food. Uh, Some things are beyond our control. I mean, I can tell you personally, food waste is one of the biggest ways that I think we can impact climate change challenges now in that we don't have to invent something new. Uh, We can actively work to reduce our our food print, as they say, uh, which would save so many other things along the way. Um, I'm really conscious of this. Uh, My husband and I work really hard at home to, to, to waste less food, but we're kind of undermined by these little people that live with us. Who, my and kids by little people, you mean you have kids. Yeah. <laughs> my, my kids will just throw something on the floor um, or, you know, wh- whatever, waste food all the time. Um, but I, I don't think it's a reason to feel guilty. And let me say that that's kind of balanced with the fact that my dog gets to eat it and just gets fatter. So I'm not quite sure, not quite sure how we come out in, uh, in our food waste problem. But the point is, I don't think it, it works to make to guilt people into taking action. But I do think if we're all paying a little more attention to how our choices affect climate issues and the big picture and some of and, and I think we all have a different role to play, as I keep saying. So 
for me, a lot of that is through education, right? I work with young people. I work with our community. I work with policymakers here in Michigan and at the national level to try to talk about these issues in a way that resonates in a way that's tangible and doesn't feel like it's consuming everything and so scary that nothing we can do will make a difference because that's just not true. But then I hope that by doing these things, they'll be able to work at whatever or whatever level they work in, whether it's the policy realm, whether it's, you know, teaching students, like if I work in an elementary school, maybe those those students go home and talk to their parents about it. Maybe those teachers talk to another class about some of these issues. Um, but I think I think talking about the way uh, that we can influence what's to come is really key. And speaking of that, you know, I want to talk a little bit more about food waste, because this is not something that I think comes up at all <laughs> um, in most of the discussions around climate change that I've seen. You know, you see a lot of um, discussions about food transport, um, for example, or um, discussions about the carbon footprint of food itself. So, for example, the carbon footprint of, say, cows. Um, mm-hmm. But you don't really hear a lot about food waste. How much does that kind of impact climate change? It's enormous. So we waste uh, conservatively 2% of the entire energy budget in the United States goes to food that we throw away. So it's not just once the food's at our house and we toss it, but everything, I mean, if it's, if it's something produced in a farm, it's all the energy to plant it, to grow it, to take care of it, to water it, to harvest it, to package it, to, to store it, to refrigerate it, to prepare it, to serve it. (laughs) And then we're just tossing stuff away and we waste maybe up to half of the food that we produce in this country. Now that accounts for a ton of, a ton of agriculture uh, in terms of land, land use, right? Because we're using land to produce something that we don't need and we can't completely get rid of food waste, but we can do a lot of things to change what we waste. So um, there are, there are certain layers to what we waste that have to do with safety, but a lot of things like say sell by dates, use by dates, uh, best by dates, a lot of that's arbitrary. Unless it's something that can spoil very quickly, like milk, we're looking at dates because consumers want them there. Maybe we can change some attitudes about when people think that something's acceptable to eat. Um, but it takes a tremendous amount of resources. And at the same time, we're wasting all this food. As the human population grows, we have to increase agricultural yields 70 to 100 percent by 2050 to keep up with demand. So it's this really high demand for food that's taking tons of our resources to produce food that we're not eating. I mean, it's, it's just it's really wild. And if we just do things like composting it, that's pretty inefficient. But we can pass on what we don't use other ways. We can store things better. We can stop wasting all the stuff that we find in our fridge after two months. Um, there's a lot of places and and a lot of large corporations are thinking about this. So we see hotel chains, we see supermarkets starting to really change the way that they store food, that they get rid of food. We have a long way to go, but, um, but I think we're moving in the right direction. And that is a priority under Sonny Perdue, um, at the national level. And it's becoming something that I think is, is, uh, becoming more popular at the consumer level as well. But I, I hope we continue hearing about it more because I think it can have a huge impact. And so many of us are waiting for some new innovation that's going to impact climate change. And that's already here. And when you talk about food waste, I mean, I feel like 
you know, there are limits. Like a watermelon is always going to have a rind you can't eat. Like <laughs> that, that's that's waste. That's got to right. be thrown away. We're we're not going to go to zero waste. Right. Though zero. I think you can pickle watermelon rinds. Now that I'm thinking about it. Um, <laughs> We actually, we had a food waste event here at Michigan State, and we served, one of the dishes, we, everything we served at the event was something that's normally wasted, and um, some kind of watermelon rind was included, so I'm sure there's something you can do. Uh, and I, and then there's also the anaerob- uh, anaerobic digesters that are starting to use food waste for energy, um, but there are plenty of other things we can do than just dump it and kind of dump all that excess water and energy with it. And you mentioned that there are efforts to kind of not reverse the effects of climate change, but to mitigate and kind of live within this, you know, changed climate that we're creating for ourselves. And a lot of that is actually centering around plants um, Mm -hmm. and not just food waste, but also food crops. Uh, What kind of changes are happening? Well, I, I keep saying this. I keep giving MSU a shout out, but I work at Michigan State University and we call ourselves Food University. So I work with so many great people that are doing genetics that are, that are, that are just simply looking at what it is that makes certain plants grow better in dry conditions or uh, with less water input or less fertilizer. And how can we possibly just through traditional breeding, but also looking at some of the genetic uh, opportunities. Uh, how can we encourage these traits, knowing that, you know, the world in another 10, 15, 20, 50 years is going to be warmer, uh, with more variable storms. And it's really neat. We actually have something here called the Plant Resilience Institute. And the whole goal of that institute with all these amazing people is to be planning our food future. Um, and, and looking at crops that are going to succeed because we know some of what we're used to won't perform as well um, in hotter, drier climates. And I, I love these ideas because I love any idea that involves food, really. Like, <laughs> I'm a very simple person. But it, these all, these ideas are also not really kind of matters of personal action, you know? Like, they are for the scientists who are doing the research, but not everybody can be one. Um, but you know, some as of you mentioned, are. personal uh, composting can't really get there either. These are kind of in the supply chain. A lot of this is kind of a matter of promoting things through collective action. You yeah. know, whether that's promoting policy changes or, you know, promoting more like trying to get policy changes for more research innovation. Um, I mean, so how can kind of climate communication help promote that kind of collective action? Well, I would say to your earlier point, just to go back to um, these, these, uh, yes, there's that research side of things, right? So we're looking at, at changing. But then there's things like how quickly have plant-based meat alternatives jumped into the market because consumers are willing to try it, right? So Impossible Foods is the one I always think of. But a few years ago, most folks hadn't heard of it. Now they're serving it at White Castle and I think Burger King. Like all of these different very popular companies are taking on having this as an option for consumers because there's consumer demand and they're not going to, they're not going to completely, uh, make beef burgers obsolete, but they are probably going to take a small slice of the market that does have an impact. So I think the collective voice of people spending money in a whole bunch of different spaces ultimately can trickle together uh, to change the outcome a bit. 
we'll see what happens with self-cultured meat because that's one I'm following really closely. And uh, we've done some polling on this. And young people or millennials are a lot more willing to try self-cultured meat than those over 55. So I think um, I think there are a lot of reasons to be optimistic about where we're headed because more and more of our consumer base over the years is going to be interested in making choices, not just uh, that are healthy and delicious and, you know, probably good for us, but also have a more global, um, a, a more global priority in, you know, a reason for choosing them. So, you know, there is, I mean, collective action, however, is going to be hugely important. Um, mm-hmm. It's going to be massively important for getting policies passed that will actually mitigate the effects of climate change. But it, it's very interesting. I think there's kind of this individualistic culture in the United States um, that you kind of need to be doing something yourself. So if there's one thing that people can do to help mitigate climate change, what do you think it is? Well, it's not it's not going to be a shock because we talked about it, but I, I constantly harp on acknowledging food waste. I mean, it could just be the next time you stay at a Marriott, ask them what they're doing about their food waste. The next time you go to your your friend's wedding and you realize there's 200 people being served Chilean sea bass and, uh, you know, 40 of them finish their dish. uh, You can ask the people serving it if they, if they, it's just the more of us that speak up and demonstrate that we care. It does make a difference. But can I just for one second backtrack and talk about the policy side of this a little bit? 100% you can. Okay, because like this is where my heart is. And um, there's been this, this um, a lot of us highlight what's kind of like this hashtag climate silence, right? Like there's all these people running for office and why aren't we having more climate debates? And I, of all people, would love to see a climate debate. But I think when you look when you look at how fast things have actually changed, and I've been tracking science issues in elections since 2007 till now, so the 2008 election uh, through where we are now looking at the presidential candidates in 2020. Um, when we got going, it wasn't just that climate change didn't come up in debates. It didn't come up in interviews. It just wasn't something you said. Uh, when we had, we, we really pressed candidates to address science policy because there's all this political science research that demonstrates that our elected leaders feel strongly tied to the policy commitments they make publicly as candidates. And those commitments have an important agenda setting role. So the whole idea is if we get candidates to talk about issues like climate change, they're more likely to arrive in office with a plan on day one. It's not an afterthought. It's not a special interest. So to see where we were, and uh, just as a basis of comparison, before the 2008 election, which was between, at the time, Senators Barack Obama and Senator John McCain. Uh, Before that election, out of about 3,000 interview questions that were tracked through Media Matters, mediamatters.org, by the nation's top five news anchors at the time, just six even mentioned global warming or climate change. This was after an inconvenient truth. Six out of 3,000, and if you're not sure how to interpret that, three mentioned unidentified flying objects. So... Climate change just wasn't part of the conversation. And now here we are in 2019, where you have major, major pushes to organize climate debates and forums. I know personally of at least five groups trying to plan a climate forum right now, and two of them have already been announced. Um, It's already coming up in debates. We're seeing policymakers use this, not just at the presidential level, 
but at the Senate and House and gubernatorial level, using this in their stump speeches to talk about why we need action. So I feel like there has really been a huge shift in a wonderful way of attention at the policy level to climate specifically. And that's no small thing because change at the national policy level takes a long time. And this has happened fairly quickly. So I'm not saying our policies are great and I'd love to see us back in the Paris Agreement, <laughs> for example. But at the same time, you're seeing a lot of cities taking on these initiatives on their own. Uh, and so I do feel like um, in small ways, we are moving in the right direction despite some losses. Well, Cheryl, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. If anyone could make me feel better, it's probably you. Oh, well, I'm optimistic, and and I hope we all can be. For more information about Cheryl Kirschenbaum and her work, check out scienceforthepeople.ca. Guess what's also there? Links! Links to Twitter and Facebook and places where you can subscribe to the show, which you should totally do. And if you're very into us, please do drop us a few dollars a month at Patreon. You can help pay our hosting costs, pay our fabulous editors for their time, and keep our dogs and cats fed. Do it for the pets. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. Music